because they know that missing that February month of rent mm. is better than having to go through three months or four months of tenant default yeah. when they have to evict the tenant down the road because the tenant really can afford the property in the first place. Welcome to the Neighborhood Podcast, where we explore the rental industry's past, present, and future. I'm joined by Brittany Lee. It's your host here, Jerome Warniak from the community team at Neighborly. Thanks for joining me, Brittany. Thanks, Jerome, for having me. Uh, I, uh, I read the article or blog post you wrote on, uh, on how cognitive bias can mislead landlords. First of all, great job on the article, and um, I, I'm very interested. I, I started thinking back to a lot of situations in my life where I didn't really realize um, there was some kind of bias creeping in. Um, I, the, the extent of my background in, in understanding this is I took a Psych 101 class about mm -hmm. eight years ago, <laughs> and all I could remember is um, learning about Ivan Pavlov ringing the bell and the dog drooling. And I think of that whenever I see my dog salivating over his food. But uh, I guess I, I look forward to unpacking this today and, and how it applies to the landlording world. Well, yeah, so thanks, Jerome. Um, I can assure you it won't uh, be as intellectual as the Pavlov theory that you learned <laughs> in Psych 101. Um, but it is uh, kind of on the same strand. So like you said so uh, eloquently, we are going to be talking about or what I would like to unpack and kind of chat with you about and get your perspective on um, is how cognitive biases can creep and affect uh, landlords' decisions when making um, uh, the decisions on tenants and the fact of the matter is is that uh, no matter how much analysis or data or due diligence that anyone does um, for any given tenant um, sometimes at the end of the day landlords just or anyone they just use their you know quote-unquote gut instinct um, which sometimes you know uh, leads them to the best decision or a good decision um, but that's what we're you know today we want to talk about three biases in particular uh, that I've, I've found um, to be most salient um, given my conversations with landlords in the past few months um, and, and we can uh, start to chat about that. Cool. Well, yeah. I, um, I, I'm quite interested in this because I've been to a lot of real estate events and mm -hmm. I've heard a lot of advice right. from landlords, not just on tenant screening, but investing. And they say, at the end of the day, you have to look at all the information you can, but you have to trust your gut. And trusting your gut is kind of core to the idea of, of real estate investing and, and screening tenants. So uh, I, I'm assuming there is bias involved when, when you trust your gut. But uh, should I not really be trusting my gut when I'm screening a tenant? I mean, yes and no, right? So Jerome, I can't tell you what to do. Um, but I will preface my answer with this. So um, the cognitive biases, the theory kind of developed in the 70s. Um, by two economists named Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. Um, and they kind of uh, created or coined that uh, term of cognitive biases, essentially saying um, that, you know, humans make decisions um, every day, but sometimes um, there are judgments and there are um, elements that affect them and, and kind of throw them off guard and do and create them and let them make more irrational decisions than most and so that's kind of what these biases stem off of so to answer your question um we're not saying you know i i'm not saying you know 
to not trust your gut, but I'm saying to just be aware that when you do trust your gut or listen to your gut, it may not come from an analytical or data-driven uh, point, but more of a empathetical and like personable and feeling kind of perspective. Stereotyping is, is one of the things I read in your article. The first thought that pops into my mind when I see that word has a negative connotation, but particularly in today's society around kind of grouping people together and making assumption about them with little information. How does how does that play into uh, tenant screening? Absolutely. So I think you uh, summarized that quite well. I mean, stereotyping, we're all aware of it and, and we're all privy to it. Um, that it, it can come off as a derogatory term, excuse me, um, where people kind of class uh, certain people by like their social status or uh, their economic status, um, things like that. With respect to, you know, the rental industry and landlords and tenants, it can come as easily as, you know, that first impression that a landlord has of a tenant when they view them or even the first impression that a landlord has when they view their credit history or their, you know, financial status. <clears throat> One usually thinks they can, you know, um, derive a certain amount of information from like that one data point or from that one report. Um, but, but that, yeah, that's essentially stereotyping and, uh, with respect to, uh, landlords and tenants. Well, I, I just rented a property. Um, I actually just got signed the lease yesterday. Oh, congrats. Thank you with my fiance. <laughs> And when we went for the tour, we didn't actually meet the landlord, but okay. I did make sure before the tour that I was not wearing sweatpants. <laughs> I was wearing a collared shirt. I was wearing jeans. And despite it being minus 30 Celsius or whatever it was here in Toronto last week, um, I tried to look as presentable as possible yeah. because I knew that no matter what, the, the landlord is probably going to be making a, a, a judgment or a snap judgment based on how I presented myself. And yeah, I, I, exactly. Um, you know, you, you've been through it. And as have many um, tenants and landlords out there, you know that first impressions do matter. And those first impressions usually lead to, um, unfortunately, or sometimes fortunately, um, those initial uh, impressions or the stereotypes that one makes on someone else who was uh, a stranger. Um, and so experience is a huge element of that um, because they have been able to see kind of the whole spectrum or the whole gamut of the types of tenants or the types of people out there. Um, it's easy to, similar to stereotyping, kind of categorize uh, different types of people um, and so this kind of plays into confirmation bias so and how it happened to with landlords is you receive you know you see like one report or you see a few data points or one piece of information and you immediately kind of every single new piece of information you find whether it be like their credit report or their like reference or their you know like I don't know their friends whatever like something um, you kind of try to add to your pre-existing theory. Um, but the, the fact of, of the matter is, is that everyone is different. Everyone's unique. Yes, many people have like, you know, a majority type of similarities. Um, but, you know, everyone has a different story. Um, and so that's where, you know, confirmation bias can creep in and then lead landlords to make that sometimes incorrect decision. I can think of a perfect example here. <laughs> okay. My dad's been a landlord for about 20, 27 years. So okay. There's a 22-unit building he, he owns here in Toronto. 
and um, he uses Neighborly now, uh, but oh, nice. in the past he did not to screen tenants. And when I first joined Neighborly, um, I, I remember asking him kind of how he screened tenants and outside of calling references and, and the normal uh, things that landlords do to screen tenants, he gave me a couple pieces of advice or, or like he said, rules of thumb I have. Mm -hmm. And he's been through, I don't know, five, 10 evictions over the last 27 years, wow. but he's built up a lot of these confirmation biases, I think, where if somebody shows up and doesn't ask if they should take their shoes off when they walk in to look at the apartment, <laughs> he makes an assumption that they're probably going to be a messy tenant. And that's right. probably based on past experience he's had. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine once a tenant does that for the rest of the tour, the showing or the interaction they have, yeah. his assumption is, I'm assuming this person's going to be a messy tenant. Mm -hmm. And that's the baseline expectation he yeah. has yeah. with everything else kind of building off of yeah. that. Exactly. No, that's a great anecdote. Thanks for sharing. And, and, you know, just to kind of play devil's advocate to that, right? I mean, it also goes to show that, um, you know, just because you don't ask to take off your shoes at the beginning doesn't mean that you're not going to be a good tenant, right? Um, and so... Uh, maybe it's, maybe the floors are cold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, just beware. <laughs> <laughs> um, hyperbolic uh, discounting is a word that I actually had to repeat about 10 times before we set the podcast up to make sure I got it right. Can you Sounds can you good. break that down for us a little bit, Britt? Uh, my pleasure. So hyperbolic discounting. So actually, I'm just getting like immediate flashbacks to like my calculus 12 class where, you know, you have like that hyperbolic formula or was that parabolic? I, I don't know. I may have missed that okay, one. Okay. Anyway, anyway, so hyperbolic discounting essentially in a nutshell is like let's get this deal done asap so that's when in the case of um it's, it's more of a financial bias so it's when people prefer a smaller sooner payoff uh rather than a larger later reward um essentially maybe people who don't um appreciate or are willing to take on like the time value of money, right? Where money will, um, your wealth can appreciate over time, right? If you just give a little bit now, um, you know, which is all like what the banks preach to you every time you open a new account, right? Um, so in this case, with respect to landlords and tenants, um, it would uh, most be become most relevant when landlords just want to get a tenant in fast, you know, no matter, you know, who they are, what they do because of that cash flow, because uh, the fact of the matter is that for some of these landlords, um, losing one month or two months, three months of rent can really put them at, uh, um, at a loss and maybe like out of their portfolio. Um, and so they're just willing to take not a good tenant or the best tenant, but just a subpar tenant that's willing to pay. But unfortunately in the long term could be, be at a disadvantage because of, you know, they're just a bad tenant being like, you know, given to property damage or things like that. Um, and so that's what, uh, I know that's a long answer, but my best answer to I, no, hyperbolic discount. I discounting. completely understand yeah. it. There's, there's something I'm relating to here or thinking back to. I go and meet with some of the large landlords in, in Canada and the mm -hmm. U.S. that own, you know, 10, 30, 40,000 rental units. And they've got very specific 
criteria and metrics set up around screening tenants. Okay. And their portfolios are diversified across different markets for the most part, where they'll have some properties in San Francisco, some properties in Kansas City, some properties in Toronto, some in Calgary. Um, and a good example is between the Toronto and Calgary market. In Toronto, we're less than 1% vacancy. So you have 10, 15 tenants show up for almost every single property uh, unit that becomes vacant. Mm -hmm. And in Calgary, with such a high vacancy rate that's, I think, it's over 15% right wow. now, they're offering incentives for tenants to show up. But what they haven't done is change their screening criteria because they understand that the long-term gain of holding off to get the right tenant outweighs the short-term gain of the immediate cash flow. So if they're sitting there you know, three days before the end of the month and they have a tenant who shows up who's willing to move in on Feb 1st, for example, they will not kind of bend their rules around the um, metrics they use, rent to income ratio, cash flow, analyzing their financial situation, and have that tenant move in when they wouldn't have approved them in a lower vacancy market. Because they know that missing that February month of rent mm. is better than having to go through three months or four months of tenant default yeah. when they have to evict the tenant down the road because the tenant really can afford the property in the first place. Yeah. So the math makes sense. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately for small landlords that only own one or two units, and maybe they're barely cash flow positive or even negative cash flow in their mm -hmm. properties, those are usually the, the landlords that would be kind of at risk for this and saying that, you know, if I miss a, a month of vacancy here, after all the money I put into renovations, yeah. my underwriting doesn't make sense on this investment yeah. anymore. And I can't afford to pay my mortgage, frankly, in two months if I don't get a tenant in here today. But at the other end, those are also the the landlords that can really be burned if yeah. if they miss four months of rent it's yeah. not one of their ten thousand properties yeah. it's their only property exactly. so uh, i understand this I, I think i understand this <laughs> no now. i think am you, i on the right path you are definitely on the right bathroom i think you put it quite eloquently so and and that's just one of the many um differences right between you know like uh, the larger um, property management for multifamily uh, companies versus that individual landlord, even that like owns from like one to less than a hundred units. And to further that note, um, you know, it's with respect to individual or like smaller landlords with, you know, less than hundred units, let's just say um, this uh, cognitive bias would wouldn't pertain uh, to people that are in very competitive markets, right? So like San Francisco Bay Area, Toronto, uh, but more so like the Calgary's and, and the uh, secondary tertiary markets where um, supply of just good tenants is just very scarce. Um, did I get that right? Yeah. So, so yeah, it's, it's, again, it's, it's just real estate. It's, it's a markets game, right? It's, it's at the end of the day, it is an asset, right? Um, but it's, um, it's just being cognizant and kind of like I think the message of I think today is really it's an asset and it's a it's a portfolio for some and it's a cash flow for some but at the end of the day it really is a home for many um, and the landlords usually have that power um, to 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 you know give people shelter or a roof over their head um, and so that's just what we need to be aware of and and sometimes you know we, we go 
we go over these biases because we understand that, right? Um, you know, sometimes the best tenant, you know, isn't the best tenant, but you're just empathetic to that. So We're humans after all. <laughs> exactly. And one, one of the things that makes real estate investing so interesting is that human element. And um, I, I, my takeaway from today <laughs> is that I need to be privy to this as a landlord and, and independent landlords should always just be aware of what bias might be creeping into their decision. You have to look at tenant screening objectively to mm -hmm. a certain extent and collect mm -hmm. as much data as, as, as you possibly can, mm -hmm. but you also have to understand the human element of it exactly. and understand if somebody's gonna be a good fit for the property with your bias in check. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Britt, thank you very much. Um, the article you wrote was awesome. If anybody wants to go check that out, just go to the Neighborly blog. We'll link that uh, just below here and uh, go read up on, uh, on Brittany's research there. Cool, thanks for having me. <laughs> Absolutely, anytime.